Hello, thanks for listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. This is Adam Rosen, your host. I'm a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who specializes in joint replacement. In these episodes, I'm going to share with you a lot of my tips and tricks and review classic articles and current implant designs. Thanks for tuning in and on with the show. Hello and welcome back. This is Adam Rosen and you're listening to the Total Need Podcast Tips and Pearls. So today I'm going to get into the thing that I believe most people want to hear is what actually happens in the operating room. So we're going to start at this point uh, with going through the patient is under anesthesia and they've already been prepped and draped and now it's time to do your timeout. And uh, once again, you'll hear me use the idea of a mantra like a uh, experienced pilot going through their checklist, no matter how many times you've done it, really try to have a way of doing it the same way every single time. Many hospitals may have a specific way of them doing the timeout, but make sure that you follow through with that. So we always check the patient, the date of birth, uh, that we have the correct side, that the implants are up, that the surgical site has been marked, and you can see that mark that the appropriate antibiotics have been given, especially if a patient has a history of MRSA. Uh, and we use transexamic acid for all of our patients. We give it prior uh, to, so you want to make sure that that has all been given and verified by the anesthesia team. So at that point, now you get the okay to use the tourniquet. Uh, so if you're going to use a tourniquet, you know, I elevate the leg. I do place a towel over my uh, Ioband, uh, one, to prevent the slippage of the S-mark bandage, uh, but two, also to prevent any of the powder that may be on the S-mark from getting onto the Ioband. Uh, the tourniquet is then inflated once the leg has been exsanguinated. Now, when we get to the actual incision, uh, even if you've marked out your landmarks and you have a very straight line with your marking pen, uh, I allude this to the thing that you may hear a forensic pathologist talk about when they look at a murder victim and whether or not the killer was an experienced killer or the first-time killer, they'll talk about the depth and the straightness of an incision in someone that has done this prior or before, where a first-time killer may have very jagged skin marks and at different, different depths. So when you make the skin incision, you want to really try to make sure that you can add and apply the exact same pressure from the top of the incision to the bottom of the incision and make it all one motion. If you do stop and start and stop and start, what you will see in the office at a month or your two or three month follow-up is even though you follow that straight line, you will not have a straight incision. And a lot of patients will take a look at the incision and make an assessment on what they believe the work was like inside. If you have a very nice cosmetically straight scar versus a very jagged scar. So that comes with time and experience. But if you can try to make sure that you make it one motion incision all the way through, and then you can deepen it as you see fit once you get through the skin. Uh, the next thing is really trying to make sure that you minimize the dead space because if you try to expose a lot of the subcutaneous tissue, what that may then lead to is areas where you can develop hematoma. So once I make my incision, I place four main retractors. I use a Gelpie retractor. You could use that or a Wheatlander up top. And then I have a specialized uh, Richardson retractor that has a Z retractor on the back end that I use pretty much throughout the case. But I use that Richardson retractor. And with the right amount of uh, technique, position, and force, you can actually put that onto the extensor mechanism, push down, lift up proximally. And a lot of times that will strip all the sub-Q fat off and very cleanly expose your quadriceps tendon and the vastus medialis obliquus. And then I place two two-prong rakes medially, um, which will allow me to expose. And I will, again, minimizing dead space, 
just expose enough of the tissue medially where I will be able to make my arthrotomy and allow for visualization of that arthrotomy at the end of the case uh, to close that. But I make a very, very uh, strong point every single time I'm in the operating room when I'm teaching people is to not stick your finger and thumb and really open up the pes anserine bursal area. It's a common mistake I see people make, and this can lead to a big hematoma forming in that area postoperatively. So now we've opened up our skin, exposed the extensor mechanism, minimized our dead space, and now we make the arthrotomy. And you can do this with a knife. I have friends and colleagues that do use a fresh blade. I do recommend that if you're going to use a blade, use a fresh blade and do not use the blade that you used on the skin to minimize the risk of contamination of skin flour into that arthrotomy area. I typically use the bovine. I'll use cut up top uh, and I will make it one pass as I come proximally to distal and then start to make my curve around the patella. My second assistant will take a marking pen and will mark the inside of the arthrotomy. And what I find is that makes it very easy at the end of the case to then go in and actually repair that perfectly um, to make sure that we've come back to where they are anatomically. And then once I do that, I will take my finger on the medial aspect of the uh, patella, making sure that I know where the bone is so I can leave a cuff of tissue. And then once I come around there with my bovie on cut, I will slide my finger down to the tibial tubercle. So again, once again, I can see, but I can also visualize and feel where that tubercle is. So I know where I want to make my arthrotomy. And as I get down to the inferior aspect of the arthrotomy, I will typically change over to coag because this is where you will see a lot of bleeders uh, in the inferior aspect of that arthrotomy. And I will come straight down on bone trying to pop the meniscus as I come over the joint line. Now, once that occurs, the gelpie moves from the uh, superficial area into the actual arthrotomy. And the next thing that I will do is before I remove that proximal Richardson retractor is I will also release the quadriceps tendon up one more centimeter. It always seems like it's too much when the knee is in extension. I do this with a small bump underneath the knee. Um, But what I see happen all the time is that when people then flex it up, there's never enough exposure. So you're going back to an area that you were already at earlier. So I do make it a habit. And in the past, I've gone through my VMO uh, split era, and I've gone through my subvastus and midvastus approaches, and I personally didn't see any significant difference in my patients. So I tend to go through a median parapatellar arthrotomy, try to limit the proximal exposure, but it offers me the ability in a tight knee, if I need more exposure, to just extend it up as need be. Uh, So once I've done that, Now we've opened up the arthrotomy and we're inside the knee joint. So at this point, the releases are based on what we did with our preoperative assessment. So let's say this is a typical varus knee. I'm not going to do a big release. I'm a very big believer in minimal releases because you can always release more later. If you make aggressive releases at the end of the case, if you're loose, it's too late to go back and tighten things up. So I will never go for a deep, deep medial release, but in my varus knees, I will start with putting that medial tissue under tension, flex the knee up, varus it. My assistant will externally rotate the leg and you can cleanly take the tissue right off the bone. Uh, Once you've exposed that triangle there, I can then use the cob and I will slide that tissue off of the bone until I can get basically to the edge of the tibia, if you're talking about a right or left knee on the clock face, you're talking about either three or nine o'clock, and then I will take a homan, place that with the cob still in place. I place the homan between the cob and the bone to get around, and then I can expose more medially or posteriorly, depending on the amount of tightness 
and the amount of deformity that I'm dealing with in that particular knee. Now, the medial release is extremely limited if somebody has a valgus deformity because they've already stretched out or attenuated their medial structures. So I will release a minimal amount of bone essentially around the tibia to where the saw may exit because once again, if I'm tight, I can always come back and release that. But if you make it a habit of releasing every knee medially the same amount, you're going to wind up with a lot of loose medial knees, especially in your valgus deformities. Now, once I've done my medial release, uh, I then take my bump, which I use underneath the knee, and place it underneath the uh, ankle, and I have my leg in extension. So my retractors come up, which exposes the superior aspect of the uh, femur, and what I then do at that point is ellipse out a portion of the synovium, which will allow the saw to exit, but also when it comes to sizing, that I can see the uh, distal anterior femur. So I usually take out about a centimeter above where the end of the articular cartilage ends. Uh, I do know some people that will try to split that, elevate it, and actually repair it at the end in the hopes that they do not get tethering underneath the quadriceps mechanism. But my ellipse extends medially and laterally if you can visualize to later in the case where the saw will come out for your chamfer cuts. Because once again, anytime that I'm at one part of the knee, I want to try to avoid having to come back there again to do the same thing because I didn't take enough or release enough in the first place. So with practice, what you'll start to learn is looking at visualized landmarks and knowing where to take it. But I try to ellipse out enough synovium that again, I can size, that the saw will exit and I can see the saw exiting when I do my anterior cut, but also medially and laterally that I'm taking out synovium, that when I do my chamfer cuts, I will see the saw exit and can remove the bone. Uh, once I've done that, then I go laterally. So what I'm going to do laterally is I'm going to take out any synovium that is on the medial aspect of the patella because I'm going to need to see that when I do my patellar cut. And I do take out a fair amount of the infrapatellar fat pad. There are studies and there's believers out there about its concern and its risk on the vascularity to the patella. I personally have not had any issues with this, but I expose and release enough of the infrapatellar fat pad that I can see and visualize my patella when I cut and also that I can see and visualize the lateral aspect of the tibia, both when I'm sizing, cutting, templating, cementing, and placing in the polyethylene insert. Now, on the patella itself, I will release a little portion of the reflection off of the lateral aspect of the patella where it comes into the extensor mechanism. And I find that at this point, it allows my patella to tilt up so I can see it better when I am actually going to cut it. And I do not believe this is a true release because what I see a lot of people do is make the cut, the cut is still tethered, and then they release that tissue off of the bone after they've cut it. So I try to make it a habit to release that tissue prior to the cut because I believe it lays my patella flatter for when I actually do cut it. So at this point, I've removed all the soft tissue. And then the last thing I'll do with my approach uh, before I will go through and uh, do any more of the rest of the procedure as far as the bone preparation is I will remove osteophytes. Now, you may have some knees that have very minimal proliferative osteophytes around the ridge uh, on either the femur, tibia, or patella. And in those patients, there's not much more that you need to do. But I remove the osteophytes at this point for two main reasons. Uh, I find if you remove it at this point, it gives you that mobile window philosophy because it opens up the space. It allows you to see more so you don't have to retract as hard and you get better visualization so you can move your retractors medially and laterally. But the second and one of the more important reasons I believe removing the osteophytes early is helpful is because now when the saw exits, 
the bone, whether or not you're on the, on the tibia or the femur, the saw blade will exit cleanly. And by exiting cleanly, you're less likely to develop these marginal fractures that many of you have probably seen happen as you take the saw through the bone and it hits the margin, it hits the osteophyte of its heart and it breaks off a piece of the bone on the femur or the tibia. So by removing those, those osteophytes early with a ronjure, or if they're really large, you can actually use a small osteotome. It not only opens up the space, but allows your cut to be more accurate allows you to see the blade and prevents those marginal fractures from occurring. Now, the only other extensive portion of the arthrotomy and the approach for me that will be different is in a patient with severe inflammatory arthritis like rheumatoid or evidence of polyvigilar nodular synovitis, PVNS, uh, in which case I'll do a more extensive synovectomy. Otherwise, for the most part, it's a pretty limited uh, synovectomy just to allow for exposure. So at that point, uh, now we've gone through everything to... Uh, the timeout uh, through the incision, through the arthrotomy. Again, I believe making that little mark with a marking pen really helps your closure at the end of the case. Doing your releases medially. And again, for me, it's all a matter of a mantra because my team and my staff know what the order is every time. So we have the appropriate instruments ready at the appropriate time, which makes your operating room run more efficiently. So I do medial first, again, limited, especially in a valgus knee, uh, and then superior, release the synovium, coming out to the medial lateral margins where your saw blade is gonna come out for your chamfers. And then laterally, again, releasing the tissue off of the lateral aspect of the patella so it tilts better because you're gonna release that later after your cut is made anyway. Uh, and then also going after all of your osteophytes if they're there to ex improve exposure and also to prevent the risk of a marginal fracture when you're using your saw blade and a full complete synovectomy for select patients such as rheumatoid arthritis or PVNS. So I hope that's helpful. Uh, in the next podcast, we're going to get into the bony resections uh, and we'll start to talk more about each individual procedure such as the patella and the femur and the tibia. So again, thanks for listening. I'm Adam Rosen. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.